still no tennis, but arguably Breakpoint's biggest show yet. We've got a very special guest to join us, but we've also got a debate as to whether players should be funding other players, the ATP and WTA merge, and Tennis Australia also having pandemic insurance. Val Febo here with you, and joining me as always is Joel Frucci on Breakpoint Podcast. Joel, how are you, mate? Good, Val. Good to be back on. Um, and, uh, well, it's finally here. I mean, we've been counting down the days all week to record this episode because uh, we've got a very special guest later on the show and he's someone that um, uh, our listeners would know uh, a bit about because we speak a, a bit about him and um, we uh, we also tweet a bit about him and we uh, we post a bit about him on uh, on Facebook and Instagram and I'm sure people that follow us would know exactly who we're talking about. He uh, yeah. may or may not wear a, a sideways hat and we make fun of him for that. Uh, that man, of course, is Marinko Matosovic and uh, we tracked him down at his, uh, at his current location at the Liga Tennis Academy in Bali. We spoke to him last week and um, had a chat about all things tennis, his career and the current state of events. And uh, it was it was a brilliant chat. Um, and I can't wait for everybody to hear it. And um, that'll be about probably a, a, a little bit later on in the show. So can't wait for you guys to hear that. But um, Joel, it's nice to see you over Zoom. I can't wait until the mm-hmm. day that we can eventually be in the same room together, but it's still nice that we can do this. Zoom worked pretty well for us last week, so we'll continue along that trend. But starting the show, and um, I mentioned just off the top there that Dominic Team's comments um, or about players sort of not uh, funding other players in the top 100, funding the players ranked from 250 to 700 mm. in the world. Um, Dominic Team has come out and said that um, some of those players that are ranked that low are unprofessional and don't put the sport first. So why should he give his money to them? He'd rather give his money to the players and organisations who deserve it. So this has obviously caused and sparked massive debate on tennis Twitter and around the tennis community. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the situation and, and uh, what your take is on, on Dominic's comments. Yeah, well, I think um, uh, I, I think the thing that hit me first was... Um, you know, for a guy in Dominic's position, um, you know, if there's no if there's no tour, then there's no tennis career, and if there's no tennis career, then there's no there's no money. Um, you know, whether it's from prize money or even endorsements, and you know, players in Dominic's position are lucky enough to make millions in, in endorsements. Um, you know, that that sort of top bracket. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I think they were actually quite distasteful comments, to be honest. And whoever really, um, I, I guess, is is sort of keeping tabs on. On his, uh, I suppose, activity when it comes to you know talking to the press and stuff, um, you know, probably not their finest moment um, because I think it's it's certainly something that I think um, from a player perspective, we know that Novak Djokovic, as the head of the Players Council, um, has welcomed feedback to the proposal that he worked on with um, mainly Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. I would have thought that. These are comments that you'd want to be fleshing out with someone like Novak, like Roger, like Rafa, rather than uh, put out into the public eye, because it really does make him look like a, a bit of a tight ass. Um, I think that's the, probably the probably the best way to put it. Um, I mean, really, there's sort of no other way because, um, you know, I mean, this this guy, um, you know, we, we know all about the, the kind of prize money that top players earn. I think uh, last year alone, Dominic Team earned something like thirty million. Um, Australian, um, you know, so thirty thousand for for him, um, which is what's being proposed for the top five players to donate into this relief fund, is 
pretty much a drop in the ocean, really. So, um, yeah, look, I think um, it was uh, ill-advised from, uh, from Dominic, and uh, it's pretty disappointing, to be honest. I, um, I like to think that um, a lot of the a lot of the, the top players in the tour would, um, you know, would be, uh, you know, I guess willing enough um, and see the big picture, um, you know, to chip in into this thing and, and, and help uh, help their fellow professionals. But there's, there's obviously there's players in this that are ranked in that bracket that are, are guys like Bernard Tomic. Why should Dominic team donate mm. money to a guy like Bernie who doesn't seem to want to be there? So I... I personally, I actually can get where he's coming from. I don't, I don't think that we're in a position to say how much someone should donate, whether someone should donate at all. If it was me in that position, I would donate. Yes, he's got the money, but I don't think like from someone that's not in his position, I don't think we should tell him what he or she or those, you know, the people that are more well off than what we are, what they should be spending um, in the, in their pastime. Yes, this is a great cause, but I think the fact that he said he'd rather give his money to the players and organisations who deserve it, I don't think that makes him look like a tight ass. I think that just makes him look like someone that's trying to be a little bit more careful with who gets the benefits of the money that he's giving, which I tend to agree with. I don't think that players who are being unprofessional should get it as much as the players who are trying and really working their butts off to to try and make sure that they can have success on the ATP or WTA tour. I think that they should be getting the money, but they just don't have the funding. So I think where teams coming from, I can actually see, I can actually see the um, the logic in his thought, but I, I don't think he should have gone with it in a public manner because now it's it's just backfiring on him because a lot of people a lot of people disagree with what he's saying. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a fair point, and you know, I, I guess. You know, it's perfectly understandable for people to say, "Well, you know, it's his money. Um, you know, why should why should he be told what to do with it?" I, you know, I, I completely get that. If it, if it was my money as well, I think it's you know, it's fair to say that I would want to be, um, you know, knowing exactly um, where it's going. That said, though, of course, it's not a like, not necessarily like for like. You know, I don't I don't have the kind of fortune that so many team does. But um, you know, again, I think I think, and we spoke a bit about this last week when um, this idea uh, first came up. Um, I think not only, uh, I suppose, where the money goes, but who is donating it. I think, again, it all needs to be means-tested. Um, I don't think it's enough for um, the the player council to necessarily just roll a blanket over the top 100 and say, um, players ranked from here to here are going to donate this. Um, you know, the top 50, um, sorry, 50 to 100 are going to donate $5,000. I don't think it can work like that. And then... Um, you know, the point you, you raised about Bernie is interesting. I'm just looking at his ATP profile um, right now. Uh, obviously, career high, 17 in uh, 2016. Yeah. Win-loss record, 185, 181. He's won four titles. His um, combined prize money um, is uh, 6.1 million US. So, mm. um, you know, we know that Bernie has been, um, I guess, a little flaky recently. A little. He's done a whole lot. And, um, but, you know, I mean... You know, um, he has come out on the record and, and said, you know, I'm just sitting here counting my millions. So, um, you know, it's a valid point. And again, I think for me, it comes back to this idea of main testing. Um, and even, um, you know, you look you look through the top 100, you've got guys like Andy Murray, um, Juan Martin Del Potro, Kevin Anderson. Um, you know, so I don't necessarily think um, that when it comes to A, donating and B, receiving, um, that we can just roll a blanket over, no. over players and say, this is how it's going to work. I think it, it really needs a lot more... Um, 
a lot more diligence and needs to be monitored um, a lot closely than I think um, it's been planned to at the moment. Um, for me, it, it you know it's it's a great idea and I think it needs to happen, but I think at the moment um, it's it's just a little bit too general. Yeah, um, I think it needs to be I think it needs to be a lot more specific um, when it comes. Um, when it comes to the players that are donating and receiving, yet I actually I still believe firmly that a guy like Dominic Team should be actually contributing more um, than the thirty thousand dollars that has been proposed at the moment. Yeah. See, my my issue is that I think the ATP should be contributing the most out of all of this. I don't think this should come from the players. I think this should come from the governing body. The players, you know, this is out of the goodness of their hearts to go out and fund the, the less fortunate players that are ranked from 250 to 700. The ATP is the sole problem behind this. And same with the WTA, same with the ITF. They're the ones that should be going in and giving the money to these players because they're the ones that are in charge of the prize money. They're the ones that have created this inequality in the first place. It should be up to them to rectify everything. I don't think it should be on the players because the players go out, do what they do, and work hard and try and, you know, earn that money for themselves. They shouldn't have to worry about the younger players on tour, the ones that are up and coming. Like, it is good that they do it, but I think this is a sole, the sole problem of the ATP, WTA, and ITF to rectify this inequality because it's not, it's nowhere near equal at the moment. And, you know, it's never going, it's never going to be 50-50, but I think that the prize money is too far heavily skewed for people that win big titles to the people that lose in the first round of challenger tournaments and ITF tournaments. You know, they should be getting oh, yeah. a, a little bit more money than what they are because uh, Dustin Brown tweeted last night he lost in um the first round of an ITF future back at the start of his career and earned uh, what 100 and I think it was 105 pounds for that loss. And then he was <laughs> so to go around he was um, stringing people's rackets for five pounds a pot, he was going and um and you know Jeez. staying in his van, traveling around by a car. You know it's it's not easy. It's not easy. So I think what needs to happen is the ATP, WTA, ITF need to look at what they've done. Grand Slams as well. All the key stakeholders in tennis need to bump up the prize money for the lower ends of tournaments. So for first rounders, for mm. qualifiers, for what have you, for wild cards and, and, and anything, the prize money needs to go up because it is not enough and it's not feasible for travellers or for tennis players who are fighting it out on the challenger circuit and the ITF futures circuit to go and travel around the world. It's not feasible and lose in the first round and try and maintain your ranking without running out of money or going into severe debt. So it's yeah. it, it's got to happen. And this is where, you know, this is where the meetings need to start. And it doesn't seem like they're happening. And the players are probably getting frustrated and saying, all right, well, let's take this upon ourselves. But then you've got guys like Team who said, well, why, sh why should we be the ones to do it when it's, you know, when there's players out there that don't care as much as others? So you're right. It does need to be means tested. But I think the sole onus now is on the ATP, WTA, and ITF to rectify the inequality. I don't think it should be on the players. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I still think that the players have a part. I guess it, it is what it is, to use that old sort of cliche. It's at the point that it's um, that it's got to, and um, you know, I guess you know, a, a whole lot of people, billions of people throughout the you know around the world have had to make some sacrifices of their own that they don't necessarily want to make. Um, you know, to sort of get over 
get over this speed hump. I think um, when it comes to prize money, uh, which I agree with you, Val, completely on the prize money thing. Um, I think I was reading the other day that um, uh, I think the the prize money for the Australian Open winners this year, um, Novak and Sophia Cannon, obviously, I think it was two point uh, five or something like that. It was there or thereabouts. Um, and players that I think were uh, knocked out in the third round of qualifying only got thirty thousand uh, dollars Australian. So um, I, I think what's really interesting for me, and you know, I guess it, it all comes back to prize money. To um, you know, obviously p- people are more interested in the, the big names, the big rounds than qualifying um, first round, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think what's um, what's going to be a really interesting thing um, after um, this pandemic? I, I would like to see um, the governing bodies of tennis really try and put some effort into actually, um, you know, showcasing um, qualifying, um, showcasing challenges, futures. Yeah. Because if they can do that and actually raise interest in those lower levels of tennis, um, then that's where your money's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I think I think that level of the game can actually justify um, those increases, as opposed to just saying, you know, we, we need we need the help. Um, the you know the, the um, dishing out of prize money is is um, you know probably not <laughs> certainly not not equal. No, it's definitely um, not. But I think no, it's not. But I, um, I think if if they can raise the interest in those levels of of the game, um, you know, bring in sponsorship, bring in broadcast rights, um, and generally put it more in the public eye i think that's where um there's a big opportunity whether people you know whether whether people respond to that and, and sort of um you know get get, uh, get into it is another question but um you know i think i think that's that's somewhere that we could that we could potentially have a look and um and really try and raise the level of interest um because i mean it certainly you know it doesn't get it doesn't get any coverage really um, no because, not at all um yeah it's it's obviously it's very much a numbers game, um, and you know Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, they're in the top five. They're the big names. They're the ones people want to see. But um, you know, certainly I think that if um, if the profile of the of the sort of lower level tournaments from you know two fifties challenges, futures, qualifying, whatever it is, um, if if you know a, a bit of backing can be put behind those things, get those get those things onto yeah. you know streaming platforms or TV networks, whatever it is. Um, then I think that's going to be uh, a big step if um, if they can uh, actually take it that far. Yeah, I agree. And look, you mentioned the prize money before. It's actually a lot more than what you said. It's four point one million Australian dollars for the winner, and first round is ninety thousand. Mm. So it's it's a lot more. Uh, it's it just keeps going up and up and up every year, and I don't think it will from from now on. Or, Must have been US dollars. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's two point se- uh, two million seven hundred fifty seven thousand six hundred twenty four for the winner in US dollars. So it's yeah, it's crazy how much they get. So like mm. it, it's and and for round one US dollars is sixty thousand. So it's pretty like if you can make it to a Grand Slam, that essentially could bankroll your entire year, but. Um, as um, as we'll find out with Marinko later on, that it's it's quite it's quite a tough task to actually be able to to travel and and fund yourself uh, over over an extended period of time. But um, 
Uh, it's definitely a watch this space story and Dominic's team, Dominic team's comments. I don't think they'll be the only ones that come out. I think there'll be more players that come out and say the same things. Um, and team will probably just have been the catalyst for that. So it's more of a watch this space thing. And um, I think both of us sort of made some good points for and against, but yeah, whether, whether it actually goes through, I'm not too sure. Just moving on quickly, Joel, before we do get to Maringo, Tennis Australia have come out and said that they too have pandemic insurance, but it also needs to be renewed before <laughs> next year's tournament. I'd never heard of this thing before Wimbledon cancelled. All of a sudden, two of the Grand Slams have it. What the hell is going on here, and why have we never heard of pandemic insurance? Oh, I was I was as blown away as you are, though. Um, yeah, I, I, really, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's incredible that this thing actually exists, to be honest. Mm. I, uh, it's yeah, good I mean, that it does. Wimbledon, yeah, I mean, it's great that it does. But, to, I mean, to hear that Wimbledon had this thing um, is, is brilliant. Um, unexpected, but brilliant. Um, and, you know, to hear that TA have it as well is uh, is, is great. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, you'd have to, from afar at least, you'd have to question um, during this pandemic how TA are faring financially, um, you know, because of everything that's gone on, because of, um, uh, you know, all the, all the uh, losses in revenue. Um yeah, so I mean, it's it's great to hear that they've, they've backed themselves in this way. I mean, who who would have who would have thought? Um, oh, you but, um, you wouldn't yeah, think no, at all. Uh, yeah, no, but um, yeah, it's 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 great. I think um, you know, it's it's really important for Australian tennis that um that TA pulls through. So um, yeah. it's great to hear. I guess uh, yeah, a bit of um, you probably wouldn't want to be the insurance company that they're uh, that they're with. Um, nope. But uh, yeah, look for Australian tennis fans. It's uh, it's it's great news. Yeah, the excess or, or the claim or. Or the premium would probably go up a little bit, but I think Tennis Australia would be pretty happy to get that under their belt and make sure that all their costs are covered um, if the Australian Open doesn't go ahead because they're still not sure. I think they're prepared to play next year's event with no crowds, but uh, I'm not sure that that will go ahead. So um, I guess it's a watch this space, and COVID-19 has thrown up a lot of... um, a lot of controversy and um, a lot of sort of a lot of curveballs to a lot of different businesses and sporting organisations around the world. So um, again, mm-hmm. it's a watch this space, and um, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens, I guess. Yeah, and it's not what we want. We don't we don't want to show an open behind closed doors. No, we definitely don't. We don't. We want to go there. We want to sit and watch Roger at Melbourne Park, or I do anyway. And uh, Joel, moving on, our next guest is uh, a man who's become an absolute cult hero on this show. His um, uh, his tenacity and fighting spirit on court is something that we absolutely loved. We loved watching him play over the last decade. He's a former ATP world number 39. He's uh, been as uh, an ATP finalist at Delray Beach in 2012. Also that year was the ATP most improved player of the year and also an Australian representative at the Davis Cup jacket number 101. The most underrated career of the millennium, I think. It doesn't get talked about enough, but uh, his name is Marinko Matosovic, and he joins us on the line from the Liga Tennis Academy in Bali. Marinko, thanks so much for joining us. How are you going? Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I'm um, going pretty good. Uh, everything's okay here. Pretty free here. I can do everything I want, except go to the beach. Beautiful. Well, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, at least you got a bit more freedom over there than what we do here in Melbourne. It's pretty, um, it's pretty. Uh, it's like we're all locked up here, so you're very lucky in that sense. But those numbers that I just read out, Marinko, you must look back on that so fondly and uh, and reflect so well on your career. What stands out the most for you? Um. Well, I have like a few regrets. I think I could have done uh, better earlier, but I didn't really um, have the guidance until I met Todd Woodbridge in two thousand nine, and uh, once I met him, my career just went up and up. 
I kept on improving every year. But um, uh, what stands out for me? I don't know. Uh, making uh, finishing number one in Australia, um, getting to thirty nine. Even though I think I could have done better. And uh, yeah, just like a, my time on tour with a lot of great wins and um, yeah, just uh, lived the dream. Basically, it's all I wanted to be a do was be a tennis player since I was 13, 14, so, and, I, and I got to do it, so pretty happy about it. And you mentioned Todd Woodbridge earlier on. What, what exactly were, were those early meetings like, and what did he say to you? What guidance did he give you um, in regards to your career and your performance? Well, I got to, like, uh, basically 170 in the world, just basically uh, uh, travelling with uh, you know, Nick Lindahl and Colin Ebelthite. Uh, not didn't have a coach. Like, I had a coach always with me from 18 and until, like... Uh, 20, 21, but then it got too expensive. And then when, when, when I started traveling like more and more throughout the year, playing 25, 30 weeks, it just wasn't possible with a coach. And then once I met Todd, um, you know, I learned how to be, a, you know, I wasn't a real professional, like, uh, to be honest, you know, like after I'd lose, I'd go out and stuff, you know, just uh, my training uh, schedule wasn't right. Like just, I was doing lots of things wrong, basically. Thanks for coming on the show uh, again, Marinko. As uh, Val said, it's great to have you on. Um, I think it's fair to say that probably the, the peak of your career came about in 2012, 2013. Um, what, what was uh, what was what were things like for you around uh, around that point, um, and, and uh, all the things you achieved in, in that part of your career? Um, yeah, um, I started to, and then and that was the after. I mean, 2012, I finished uh, top 50 for the first time, got most improved player. Um, I didn't really have any let's say, big wins, and I had to play well to get my wins. I had to play good. And then once I started working with, uh, who I already worked with, Mark Woodford, the other half of the Woodies, I uh, worked with him in 2011, but I had to um, share him with Matt Ebden, and, you know, um, that wasn't very fun for me or Mark, uh, sharing him with Matt Ebden. There was, like, a few problems always, and we don't get along that well. And then once I had Mark Woodford, um, 2013 101, I started to you know win matches, not playing good, added more strings to my bow, and I and I became a much better player. I probably made my best results in 2013 quarterfinals of a Master Series in Canada, and then but in 2014 and 15, I would say I was playing even better. I had better wins in 2014. You know, I'd beat guys like Cilic, Vadasco, Tonga, Isna, so. I was probably better playing in 2014 and 15, I would say. Well, you mentioned that winning or the quarterfinal performance in uh, in Montreal back in 2014. Yeah. That was an unbelievable week. You beat some really good players. And what was it like sort of progressing through to the deep end of a, of a Masters 1000 and then taking on the eventual champion, Rafael Nadal? How was it How was it facing up against Nadal and sort of and, and the intensity that he brings to the court? Um, well... Uh, that those results came at the back end of some personal problems that I had. Um, you know, I wanted to go home. Uh, Mark Woodford uh, talked me into staying, and then we just fo- I like all I did was uh, do gym, hit the court. We trained really hard, and actually had a really good week in Washington. Where I beat James Blake, Davidenko, Milos Raonic, and then didn't even have to think about it. I had to go play qualies in that Masters, and then be like Tommy Haas, Benoit Paire, Benjamin Becker. It was just like uh, two really amazing weeks. And then uh, playing Nadal, I actually already played him in Monte Carlo, uh, the match where I kicked over his water bottles. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, yeah, when he shanked the pass, when he shanked the pass, and uh, I, actually, I actually won $100 of Ter- Dimitri Tursner, who bet me I wouldn't do it. So that's the, <laughs> that's the real reason I did it, you know, for 100 bucks. <laughs> 
Oh, that's brilliant. That is. I was actually going to ask you about that, so I'm glad you spoke about it. But um, mentioning uh, your 2014 year, it was also a really special back to the clay when you um, won your first Grand Slam main draw match in your 13th yeah. attempt. It would have been a lot of relief, and uh, you played against Dustin Brown, who's enigmatic at his best, and to get yeah. through in four sets, and then your celebration where you rolled on the ground about uh, five or six times. What what, what was the feeling um, after that? Oh, well, that, uh, that terrible Grand Slam record that I had early on, it just, uh, I should have won my first ever one in 2010 Aussie Open, where, like, had set points in the first set, didn't get a second set of chances, won the third, had like three one up in the fourth. I really should have won my first one against Marco Cidinelli, Federer's best friend anyway. Uh, didn't have the experience then. Then it got really bad. I came up with some tough draws mm. against some uh, good players. And then one or two times I didn't take my chance, like against Guillermo Rufin or Barankas lost. And then uh, it just became psychological, you know, like uh, I got to 39 in the world making quarters of a Masters series and stuff, but hadn't won a sl- match at a slam. It was like getting ridiculous, you know, and there was guys like making third, fourth round that hadn't even made top 100. And then uh, I became mental, you know, every time the slam came around, it was in my mind, people were writing about it, people were mentioning it. And then uh, in that match, I was two sets to love up actually, and a break even maybe, and he won, the thirds came back, and it was 5-1 up in the fourth. So yeah. Uh, lots of people don't know he was five up in the fourth, and I'm like, I just like just said to myself, okay, uh, you just got to go for it. It's you know, it's uh, now or never, and I won six games in a row. So against Dustin Brown, you know, yeah. with his serve, he's been in rough, he's been an amazing player. So to win six games in a row, and I just like it was just huge relief when he double faulted. So I just I didn't know what to do. So I just it was <laughs> just spontaneous. So I just rolled to the net. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's come up um, in our most recent show that we did, Marinko, was uh, we were talking a bit about the, I guess, the well-ranked players in, in the circuit, and um, yep. there's been the news about the the fund as well that the players are, are looking um, to put together, where um, I guess the the top echelon of players will chip in some money, and then it yep. kind of trickles down um, from there. And you, you know, you've seen a lot of um, a, a lot of the tour and a lot of the sort of the, the toiling that you have to do to get yep. to where. Um, you got to go. Um, I guess. What, what are your thoughts on um, how um, the, the tour, um, the ATP and, and the WTA, I guess, and you know the the ATP and the WTA themselves and the ITF even, how can they um, uh, support the the lower ranked players and really get them through what's going on at the moment? Um, well, it's pretty simple. Uh, the prize money is too top heavy. Um, you know, like. It's 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 got to be more spread out. You know, it doesn't need to be Australian Open four dollars for the four million dollars. Uh, you know, for the winner. I mean, uh, you just have to look at the other sports. How much their guys, that two hundredth best football players or basketball players, are getting. I mean, tennis, it's it's not even close. It just has to be. Uh, but, but tournaments, this is where the tournaments they they want to break the records, prize money records for the winner and this stuff, and they like compete against each other uh, instead of just. Uh, even, evenly distributing it um and then um i've got very strong views i heard i just read something that federer wants to combine the tours terrible idea you know 20 years ago at the early 2000s there was no combined atp and w events um and now they're combining more and more in the last you know 10 years it's a terrible idea the two tours should be separate you know men's tennis um brings in all the money basically besides like serena williams or marie sharapova so it's a terrible idea shouldn't happen and um, and I think it's one of the reasons there's been uh, not as much of an increase on the ATP tour because uh, we've had to share with the WTA. So uh, just they just got to even it out more. 
from, yeah. from the qualifying, you know, not not just you know from the main draw, from the qualifying. Can you give us a bit of an insight um, into what it was like for for you going around in those, um, I suppose, those more obscure locations that yep. you had to go? I can like, I never I never did uh, I never went to weak places to play. Uh, so from eighteen, all those from I don't know, I only played in Australia. Asia, Europe, and America. I never went points hunting like uh, I don't know in the early days of the AIS when uh, uh, Brent Larkham had it. I mean, he was sending. Was, I call well, there was a joke. It was a third world tour. He was sending all the Australian players <laughs> you know, to all these uh, parts of the world. There, no one goes to so Australian players to get pick up points. You know, when Australian tennis was really struggling in the late uh, noughties, and then. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough. It honestly, you know, you got to start with futures qualifying. If you're not a top junior, you got to start with futures qualifying. You lose there; it's no prize money. Um, and then the futures, there's hardly any money in futures. Um, it's really tough. You're sharing rooms. Uh, you're sharing a coach. Uh, there's no chance for if you know, like later on my career, I had a physical trainer always travel with me. And there's no chance of that. You know. Um, uh, it, it's really tough. And then you know, you're doing everything your own if no one's sponsoring you. Um, yeah, it's just really tough. Uh, you know, the high up you get, it's kind of not fair. You get, you know, deals thrown at you at the top level. They're picking you up in nice cars. They're taking everywhere, free food. Well, it's the opposite in futures. You've got to basically uh, do everything yourself, you know, everything. So um, there was a lot, lots of tough times, you know, sharing a room with like four or five guys, uh, not eating right, you know, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I lost money for the first uh, three years on tour. You know, I was definitely in a, in a big minus. Three, four years, I lost money uh, in a big minus, and uh, I got to really thank my parents and, and uh, had like one little sponsor guy sponsoring me. So, yeah. Yeah, and a, a lot of players, including John Millman, he said that you know, why is it taken until a global pandemic for all of this to be highlighted? And um, what would you recommend for all of the governing bodies, the ITF, ATP and WTA to do? Would you recommend them sit down and work out a plan to to sort of make that top-heavy funding sort of treacle a little bit higher for the lower-ranked players? I mean, uh, they just tried something last year with that separate ITF tour, but that was a terrible mm. idea, you know, so terrible. Like, uh, Didn't no work at all. No, it was... Um, because, like, you know, I think uh, someone from the ATP, like, made a mistake or someone from the ITF. You never know what's, like, really going on. People are just, you know, looking after their own interests. But, yeah, they got, they're all going to sit down together, obviously, and work out a better system. And um, But, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the top players. It's the big stars that have to. Unfortunately, I know they, they've got their own interests. They're busy as well. Um, pro- probably it's the last thing they want to encounter with. But, you know, it's really the top stars that drive everything in, in tennis, especially, you know, Federer and Nadal Djokovic, they got to sit down and um, and just work out a fair system. I don't know. It I wouldn't take too long, but, but you know, uh, we'll see if it gets done. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult situation that, that players find themselves in. You mentioned those top players, and you've played against yeah. Nadal, you've played against Murray, you've played against Federer. And the one I wanted to bring up sort of to change direction a little bit yeah. is your encounter with Federer at the US Open in 2014 when yeah. you had a certain Michael Jordan watching you play. And um, <laughs> yeah. uh, during the match, you said, um, I just want to be like Mike, and then ended up meeting him after the match. And um, yeah. what was it like to play in front of, because I've read that you're a massive basketball fan, what was it like to play in front of the great man? And... Um, uh, what did you say to him after the match? So um, there was there was rumors, you know, he doesn't make too many public appearances. There was rumors he was coming uh, to watch uh, Federer 
and uh, they were doing a shoot collaboration, yeah. but you know, but no, no one could say for sure, you know. And then um, I was playing the match. I already played Roger. I lost to him easy in Brisbane in quarterfinals Friday night in a big prime time match in Australia. And then uh, I was playing pretty well. And then uh, I was down two sets to love. I don't know six four six three, and I was down a break, right? And so your mind wanders a little bit, you know, you've been out there about two hours, and I just look around, I look to Federer's box, and I see Michael Jordan, I'm like, oh, no <laughs> way, you know, and uh, and then I'm like, all right, I had to do a double take, anyway, I won the juice point, I go to his side, and I look up, and it's, I'm like, fuck, it's really him, you know, <laughs> and and uh, I just said, uh, you know, I want to be like Mike, and, uh, and you know, he gave me, like, a look, and then the crowd did a huge, like, you know, round of applause, which uh, I think disturbed Federer. And uh, I broke back and took it to a tiebreak. I actually led 4-1 in the tiebreak, didn't get it. Uh, he won the match. But then after in the locker room, um, yeah, in the, the locker room, got to meet him. And he was like so nice. He's like, I liked your hustle out there, man. Uh, keep fighting, keep going. And then um, the coolest part was probably at the end after I showered, uh, did all my stuff. Uh, was going was going home from the players where you leave with the courtesy cars. And it was about all these like 500 people waiting for him. Yeah. As he was leaving into his limousine, and uh, you know, on the way out, he just shook my hand and says good luck and uh, wish you all the best, and just went into the limo, and uh, and it was a real surreal experience. Got to meet one of the greatest athletes of all time. They call it the uh, the World Cup of tennis, of course, as I'm sure you do. Uh, you know all too well, Marinko, and uh, you have represented um, Australia in the Davis Cup team, yeah. as Val said. Um, can you take us through some of your your best memories um, putting on the on the green and gold on the court? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, re I really loved uh, Davis Cup and playing for Australia. Um, the first time I was Orange Boy, I uh, wasn't as enjoyable. Uh, John Fitzgerald was the captain, and uh, I don't know, he's not the most inspiring leader, in my opinion. Um, and then uh, and then once Rafter came in, uh, it was a bit better. But, um, yeah, the, the, my, my, my favourite part was working with Tony Roach when... When he came in, when Rafter came in, that was the best part about Pat coming in. Was working with Tony Roach. I uh, loved every all the sessions with him. I did Indian Wells in Miami, just one on one with him. And um, in regards to Davis Cup, probably my first uh, tie. I, I probably wasn't ready. I was like 120, 130 in the world. And uh, you know, Australia was really struggling in those times. We had Leighton, uh, Tomich, myself, Guccioni. Uh, but you know, we were always in like uh, zonal qualifying or playoff. Uh, but just uh, the, the coolest part was like before the matches, you know, you do that Nationals anthem. Uh, that was pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, receiving my jacket 101 was pretty cool, to, you know. Um, and then uh, what else can I say about it? I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just really different to play for your country, um, you know, not for yourself. And I uh, just love being around the guys and uh, learn, learn so much, you know, from the guys, especially from Rochi and Leighton. Do you think there does need to be more team tennis around the world? Uh, I know Kyrgios thinks so. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one because it's an individual sport, and um, I mean, I mean, I don't know how I feel about the Davis Cup changing. There's uh, pros and cons to both. I know the top guys weren't playing, so in, in, and it needed a change. It's dying. Every country was losing money, but then I get the other side of it changing. You know, you lost all that tradition and the history of it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just depend. It just depends uh, how you can structure other teams, team competitions around it. But yeah, it was it was an amazing time. As you said, Marinko, you spent a lot of time around a lot of uh, legends of Australian tennis. Yeah, and, um, you have gone into coaching now, as um, as yeah. I said 
off the top in, in Indonesia. So I guess this one's a bit of a, a two-pronged question. Did you yeah. Was it always the plan for you to, to go into coaching? And um, I guess by extension, how did you find your way over to Bali? Well, uh, I'll answer that last one first. I just wanted to basically um, live where every, every, everyone holidays, a place I loved. You know, I loved uh, uh, Bali, like the energy here, the people. Um, I've been vegan since 2017, so it's like a ve- the best place for vegans probably. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I just love the energy here, and then um, yeah, just uh, got lucky that this uh, tennis center was like uh, just finished building before. Like, because I did it one and a half years, I just traveled the world, you know, with my girlfriend. Um, uh, just traveled the world doing nothing, you know. And I was like, oh, the day started to get boring, you know. I was like, oh, what I want to do, you know. So a year and a half, you know, I was just traveling, and then I was like, no, nah, you know. I'm not. Don't really want to go into real estate or some businesses. You know, I'm not really passionate about that. You know, the only thing I've known all my life is tennis. So I want to get into tennis, and just got uh, really lucky with the Liga Tennis Academy here. And then that that the, the first part of the question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like with coaching. Um, I had unbelievable like people help me like some of the best. Some people say Darren Cahill is like the best coach in the world. You know, I've worked, he's helped me a little bit. I have conversations about him. Obviously, two huge tennis minds had the biggest impact in my career. Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodfed had Tony Roach. You know, Davis Cup, one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach, with his resume. Had Leighton Hewitt helping me, Pat Rafter. So I mean, uh, just yeah, I've been really. Uh, lucky in that sense and I feel like all the knowledge that I've gotten from all those Aussie legends and world tennis legends most of them in the tennis hall of fame like I can pass on um, to people so like my strength is not that I got to like let's say 39 the world I know the pathways to get to top 40 it's like that I've worked with these amazing coaches in my in my I've been so lucky in my uh, career we had um, Mark Zafoulis on uh, a couple of days on our last show and he was talking yeah. about his coaching philosophy and and you know he loves to get the best out of people and and what would your coaching philosophy philosophy be and how, uh, what advice do you give to your pupils um well that's a, that's a tough one i guess uh what all my players i want them to play like the the australian way of playing tennis which is attacking tennis you know but that doesn't mean just rushing forward to the net and serve volleying all the time means you know being able to play on the baseline aggressive defense or attacking baseline and then be able to finish points at the net, you know, I really believe uh, that uh, the Australian way of playing is being lost a little bit and that's the message I got from all the guys I just mentioned, all the Aussie legends that I mentioned before, it's being lost and, you know, I want all, I want all of my players to be able to play at the backcourt and the forecourt. With, but the three things I focus on mo- mostly, the most important things I ten- in, in believing tennis is serve, return and forehand. So they're the three biggest focus that I, I work on. Moving just back to the um to the career, Marinko. Uh, just yeah. a quick one. We want to ask you just a couple of quick fire questions. Um, yeah. Your best win. Ah, that's a tough one. Probably uh, I don't know. at Tsonga yeah. at uh, Queens. What, what, what was the strangest place that you've visited, Marinko? Because we hear all about the the weird places that people yeah. go to. But um, what was the strangest one that you had had to go to? Uh. Definitely a place called you've never heard of Namangan. We went to play Davis Cup there against Uzbekistan, 
the place was an absolute shithole. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had to, we had to ply, fly a private jet from Dubai to this place in Amangani. It was close to the Afghanistan border. We brought our own chef. We brought our own food. Um, and the, I don't know how the ITF approved this hotel. It's, it's, I think, for Davis Cup, you have to have a four- or five-star hotel in this place. Uh, you wouldn't give it any. You wouldn't give it any stars in Davis Cup. Like Leighton Hewer, Tom and me, we were, sh- we were showering with bottled water. Oh my god! Gosh. I've heard bad things water. about Uzbekistan from um, from Sam Groth. He said some shocking things about the place. So yeah, so uh, yeah, Namangan where we played Davis Cup. Bloody yeah, hell! Absolute shithole, shithole. Oh jeez! Now before we let you go, Marinko, we just yeah. have to ask you about this. There was a, a great photo that I think Ben Rothenberg. Put up on his Twitter feed, and it was you, of, of you with uh, a cap on your head in a very uh, odd position. I think it was it was uh, sideways. Yeah, uh, is, is that always been, a, I guess, a bit of a, a, a thing for you, or was it just kind of one of those spontaneous things? Because it really did take uh, social media by storm at the time. Uh, no, I've always uh, Tony Roach does as well. I always uh, pointed that if I, if I wore a hat, I pointed to uh, where the sun was. You know that way. <laughs> didn't wear a straightways and um, that hat was a president uh, from someone from the Boston Celtics I did an interview I think in Miami or something where I said I like I love the Boston so I go for Boston in all the sports and uh, they sent me a Boston Red Sox hat with my name on it so which is pretty cool so I thought I'd, I'd wear it while I met uh, MJ that's brilliant, mate. That's um, it's been a wonderful career for yourself, and um, the fact that you're coaching and passing your knowledge on to students and other people is just wonderful. And as I said at the start, it's one of the most underrated careers that we've seen. You definitely don't get um the recognition that you deserve. It's been it's been brilliant, and thank you for sharing some of your stories with us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Marinko Matosovic. Thank you very much for being on Breakpoint. Thanks, guys. Oh, Marinko Matosovic, there, Joel. How Good was that chat. I loved every second of it. Yeah, extremely. And um, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by how forthright he was because uh, anyone that's seen Marinko um, in and around the the press when he was playing would know that he wasn't exactly the biggest fan um, of the media. So um, it was great that uh, you know, firstly that he um, agreed to jump on with us, and um, and then that uh, he stuck around for a good twenty five minutes, and um, he really uh, was pretty blunt with some of the things that he said, whether it was uh, about yeah. people or uh, about issues. And uh, one, of the, one of the big ones that you mentioned was um, did not hold back in saying that uh, the idea of the uh, the merger between the uh, ATP and WTA that's been floated by uh, Roger Federer was, uh, yeah, in his words, as people just heard, a terrible idea. Well, do you, do you disagree? Because... I don't. I, I think he's... I actually think he's right. For now, anyway. I... I, I he said that the men, the men's players, Roger, Rafa, and Novak, are the draw cards apart from Serena Williams. And he's 100% right. And Serena doesn't have that long to go, Joel. And when you're looking at the players and, and all, all of the things that, that go on on the two different tours, it seems as though the ATP sort of does bring in more revenue and with crowds and, and everything. And I, I, did, I did a piece for the first serve the other day saying that in the long run, it may be a good idea but there's still way too many inequalities in tennis at the moment between the men's and women's tours that um, that, that are around that, that need to be eradicated. And look, I was saying that in the future, eventually mixed doubles can become a more prominent thing, which is great. We can see more of that. There can be a year-end finals for that if, you know, if possible, you know, if the tours were merged. There could be a 
um, it, it could be easier for the media and fans to get information because going between the two websites, I'm sure you've noticed as I have, the ATP website is so much better than the WTA one. The WTA one is that confusing, it's not funny. And, the, and you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be good to see the women get a lot more exposure. But I think the WTA hasn't helped themselves in a way in... And the main one for me, I don't know about you, Joel, but is market uh, is marketability, marketability. I can get that word out. There we go, of athletes. And I feel as though the men's side do such a brilliant job of this with how they promote the next generation and how they promote the young guys onto a demon or Zverev, Tsitsipas, um, Shapovalov, Oje Aliasim. All of those guys have been promoted through the next gen finals, through tennis TV. How many how many times did tennis TV post during the day? The WTA doesn't yeah. even have a social media account for its streaming service. And if you weren't a tennis fan, would you have been able to to or would you have known who Ash Barty's semi finalist or semi final and final opponent were at the French Open last year? Because I can guarantee you, if you weren't a tennis fan, you would have no idea about Anna Samova and Vondrasova. And that's just the harsh reality. I love women's tennis. I want it to succeed. I wouldn't mind this merger to go through. But there's still way too many inequalities. And Marit Safin and Mikhail Yuzhny have just said the same thing. Oh. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that we should say is that um, I think uh, what what Marit Safin and uh, Mikhail Yuzhny said was was probably a little bit disrespectful to, it was. to women's tennis. Um and I think as well, I think as well, it's it's actually really important, at least in my opinion, to put it out there that I, at the moment, I really do believe that the WCA currently has on its books the best ambassador in the world for the sport, and that's Ashley Barty, yeah, um, because she just ticks all the boxes. Um, so I think in that sense, I think when you when you look at a player in the world at the moment that is the most marketable person that tennis has, in my opinion, it's Ashley Barty. So I think that's important to note. I guess um, you know the counter argument is that if if um, if we want to maybe iron out some of these inequalities, um, then if the ATP and the WTA were to come together, and you know if if we think um, as we do that that the ATP probably has deeper pockets than the WTA does, if they were to come together, then perhaps some of those resources could go into uh, you know creating. Uh, channels like um, you know the WTA equivalent of tennis TV, for example, yeah. um, of um, you know an expanded media unit, something like that. Um, I guess the counter argument, though, and you know, I I, I, I am in the camp that um, it's it's probably not the right thing to do at the moment because yeah. the two tours are um, so different, um, and the actual individual tours themselves are extremely different. Yeah. Um, and the reality is, I mean, um, you know, one of the one of the most obvious ones is, you know, the, the differences in in the players themselves, um, you know, the, the genetics. It, it's just a fact that, you know, the, the the men are are stronger and more durable than the women. That's just a fact and a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you look at something like, um, you know, just some of the individual rules that that they have on on each of the tours, um, you know, obviously the, the WTA has um, for for uh, tour events. Uh, coaches are allowed are allowed on court. Yeah, um, that's that's different than the ATP. They're not allowed on court. So it's just it's just things like that. Um, yep. I, I guess you'd have to ask yourself if they were to come together, would that be a blanket thing for for both tours? That's actually a rule I hate. I mean, I actually I don't think coaches should be allowed on the court. No, I agree. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I just think I think that um, the, the two tours are, are just 
too different to come together as one. But you know, I think it's I think it is important to acknowledge that if uh, uh, if they were to come together, it, it would inevitably uh, help the, the the WTA and, and its players um, address these these inequalities that um, that we speak about. But I, I think um, you know, I think they're just they're just too different uh, at the moment to to come together. And you know, probably unfortunately, the reality is that they they probably they probably always will be. Um, uh, that as well. Yeah, and look, I, I agree, and they are too different at the moment. And I think, look, in the long run, it does work. It does. There's so many advantages to having the tours merged together in one organisation, and it makes it so much easier for so many different people, and also less voice when in decision making in tennis. There's seven major stakeholders in the sport: there's the ITF, ATP, WTA, and the four Grand Slams. So mm. I think. If if we can, if that, that's a lot of major stakeholders. If we can narrow that down, yeah, you want less stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. If we can narrow that down and take away two, that makes it what that makes it all. It only really takes away one less stakeholder. But they're, they're the two two of the three major stakeholders really, the ATP and WTA. So if we can make one sort of really superhuman body here that can make decisions and really stamp some authority in tennis, then it's not a bad thing. But at the moment, I think the inequalities are too great and that the WTA does need to lift its standards a little bit in terms of how it's run. Um, I just don't think they promote themselves enough in a way that, that they should and some of the rules as well are a little bit different. But I think if they can do that, then it's a wonderful idea. It really is. And we're, we're not saying that it's not a good idea on the show. We're saying that it's not a good idea now. But in the future, it could definitely work. And that's I think that's where the both of us are coming from here. But um, there's still a lot of um, a lot of ironing out that needs to happen, but who's to say that that it couldn't work? It does work for badminton, of of course. So, um, <laughs> so who knows? It could it could work for tennis in the future, but definitely not now. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that need to that need to go under the bridge. So, um, fingers crossed that does happen. But um, Joel, moving on again. We thought, now we've been doing a little bit of nostalgia over the past couple of weeks. We did our top five Grand Slam matches for men and women. Last week, we did the first match that we ever attended live. And funnily yeah. enough, it was both the same tournament and the same day. So that's unbelievable. <laughs> but in, on on the back of chatting to Marinko Matosovic, who I said it was had the most underrated career this millennium, and it doesn't get talked about enough. We're going to go our top five underrated careers, apart from Matosovic, who we've had on the show. So yep. we're going to go through and talk about our top five underrated players. Now we'll go, we'll go top five men, top five women. But elaborate on your number. We'll elaborate on our number ones. So we'll go into yeah. a little bit more detail. So we'll start with you, Joel. We'll start with your yep. top five underrated female careers. Yep. So I, I just now I, I threw this lady in just because I wanted to remind people that I um, I picked her to win a Grand Slam. Um, <laughs> God, two and, and a half years later, <laughs> still going on about it. Yeah, still going on about it. Um, look, she might have won more slams, but um, anyway, she at least got one. So I just thought I'd throw that in there to uh, be a, a little bit of a cheeky bastard. Um, fourth, I have uh, Kimiko Date Krom, and yeah. the reason I've thrown her in there um, is mainly just because of uh, I guess what what. You know what she achieved, um, and it doesn't really get spoken about a whole lot. But um, obviously, she came out of retirement and played until she was forty-six. Yeah, if you can believe that. Uh, um, career high ranking of world number four as well. So she had a very, very good career. Yelena Yankovic comes in at number three for me. Um, a bit of a shame with Yelena. I don't really think she achieved um, what she probably could. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, I don't think she'll get remembered um, the way um, that she probably deserves to. Um, also won, uh, won doubles at Wimbledon in 2007. Yep. Um, but, some, yeah, didn't win a single slam. So that's probably the one, well, definitely the one that she wanted and probably deserved. Only one um, single slam final, too. Yeah, exactly, yep. Uh, Flavia Panetta. Um, also known as uh, Mrs. Fognini, um, a US Open champion, former world number one and Australian Open doubles champion. Um, I think, I guess, the general theme here is that, um, you know, doubles often gets overlooked um, when it comes to player achievements. We only sort of look at singles, but, um, you know, she's achieved plenty on both sides of the ledger and her and Sara Arani um, really did big things for Italian tennis. They were part of that, I guess, golden generation of Italian women's tennis. And now we're really seeing one on the men's side uh, as well. So it's a good uh, good little phase for Italian tennis in the 2000s. Yes, and it is. I don't, think, I don't think there's a more underrated player in the history of tennis, whether it's female or male. Svetlana Kuznetsova. I mean, yeah, forget that You're right. she is a dual Grand Slam champion. And from... From having read her profile, I believe she's only one match, one singles match away from playing 1,000 matches. So that's another uh, big thing for her. But, of course, she won the French Open and the U.S. Open. Um, she has won two Australian Open doubles titles and made the final of another three uh, doubles grand slams and has another 18 singles titles and a career-high ranking of world number two. So she has had a fine career. And, um, you know, unfortunately... She just does not get the accolades that I think she deserves. I mean, so, uh, certainly she's in the twilight of her career at the moment. Um, you know, and maybe that's a, a reason for it. Um, but still, I think when, when she retires, I mean, um, I really do hope that, you know, she gets the, the praise and, and the credit that she deserves because she has had a wonderful, wonderful career. Yeah, an absolutely wonderful player. And I still see her as a dangerous floater in any draw that she's in. She's been a Absolutely. wonderful custodian of Russian tennis and tennis in general. So brilliant from you there, Joel. My women are Sam Stoza in at number five, former world number four and 2011 US Open winner. Um, even in Australia, she doesn't get the accolades that she deserves, um, you know, winning a Grand Slam, but it always yeah. seems to be overshadowed by the fact that she can't really compete well on home soil. But you know what? She's a Grand Slam winner and another Grand Slam final to boot as well. Marion Bartley, uh, former world number seven and 2013 Wimbledon champion as well. I don't think she gets the um, the recognition she deserves. Anastasia Pavlichenkova has been as high as world number 13 and quarterfinals at all four Grand Slams in her career. She comes in at number three. Carla Suarez Navarro, former world number six and quarterfinals at three of the four slams, seven in total. So, and has won some really big tournaments throughout her career. My number one, was Dominika Sabulkova maximised her five foot three height to monumental fashion? Eight titles, including the WTA finals in 2016, reached a world number four. Uh, that's her career high ranking. An Australian Open final in 2013. She's also made a French Open semi-finals uh, and Wimbledon and US Open quarterfinals. She reached the quarters or better at eight different slams, and she's retired now and uh, expecting a baby. So. Wonderful career from Sabulkova. Yeah. She really maximised everything that she did. Her fighting spirit was brilliant, and um, she'll forever be remembered um, as such a such a brilliant player and someone that really deserves to be up there with um, with some of the with some of the best of her generation. Yep. Well said, Val. Um, Your men. Shall we move to the men? Yes. Yep. So coming in at number five for me is uh, Stanimal, Stan Vavrinko. Now. People underrated? Why is he underrated? Yeah, people will say why is he underrated. Now, 
the reason I'm, I'm naming him as underrated, and we know he's achieved plenty, plenty in his career. He's won Grand Slams. The reason that I have him as underrated is because in most other countries, he would have spent a lot of time as the number one ranked man of his nation. But he has had to contend with a certain guy called Roger Federer for the entirety of his career. I know. <laughs> and has just, I'll say lived in Roger's shadow for the most part of it, but he has, of course, he served him on some occasions and actually you know, worked with Roger. Um, yeah. Of course, won the um, doubles gold in, uh, was it London? I think it was. Beijing. Now? Beijing, that's right. Yeah, won the doubles gold in Beijing with Roger. But for the most part, he's he's just, you know, being, I guess, living behind and having to deal with the, you know, the stardom that, that Roger Federer um, brings, which is a bit of a shame for him. But nevertheless, he still had a yeah. uh, a great career. I just think if Roger wasn't there, then uh, who knows what we would have uh, exactly. what we would have remembered Stan Wawrinka as. Uh, at number four, Tommy Haas. Four slam semifinals across 10 mm. years, 1999 to 2009. That is very impressive from the German. Won a silver medal, uh, Olympic silver in 2000 here in Sydney. Well, not here in Sydney, but up there in Sydney, in uh, our home country of Australia. We're in Melbourne, Joel, the better city. Yeah, we are in the better city of Melbourne. And, uh, of course, Tommy Haas was uh, once a world number two as well. So he had a, a very fine career himself. Uh, number three, um, the man who sounds like he once fought for the USSR, Nikolai Davidenko. He was a very good mover in his day. Reached world number three in 2006, four Grand Slam semifinals. Um, was a year-end finalist as well, people forget, in uh, yep. 2009. Um, in London, and um, I guess it's a bit of a shame because it kind of feels like he petered out a little bit um, towards the end of his career in, in 2014. But whenever I watched him, um, mainly at the Australian Open, um, you would watch Nikolai Davidenko, and whoever he was playing against, whether it was Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, um, whoever it was, when Nikolai Davidenko was on the court with them, you would just know that they were in for a tough day at the office. It was not going to be easy. And Roger Federer, certainly, I know, because I remember watching Nikolai play against Roger a few times. Um, Roger, you know, didn't always find it easy against Nikolai. So, um, yeah, so he certainly deserves to be in there. Um, David Ferrer at number two. Now, it's such a shame that we, we speak about this so often. It is a crying shame, Val, yep. that David Ferrer did not win a Grand Slam. Yeah, He was such a likable player. Um, I think when uh, Marty Fish he put out that uh, that ISO challenge of name your perfect tennis player yeah. and bring together some some attributes. I named David Ferrer as my uh, as uh, whose movement I would take in a player. He was a genuinely amazing mover, career yeah. high of world number three, twenty seven singles titles, made the uh, French Open final in twenty thirteen. Yeah. Unfortunately, just couldn't close it out, but. He won three Davis Cups. Now, that is mightily impressive. Yep. Of course, we know that Spain are an absolute juggernaut of, of tennis. But, um, you know, it's great that he was able to at least win some silverware and a lot of it for his country as opposed to for himself. And my most underrated player, um, and this is another real tragedy, is Juan Martín Del Potro. Now, mm. luckily for Juan Martín, who is a player that I absolutely love, he has won a slam, of course, won the US Open in 2009. He's won 20, uh, 22 singles titles. Um, hit a career-high uh, ranking of world number three, but he could have achieved so much more yep. if it wasn't for injury. It's a real shame. And, uh, of course, Juan Martin, um, you know, his, his, uh, his biggest injury was uh, the wrist injury. And um, if you're a tennis player, that's the one that you don't want. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's a real tragedy, but um, Juan Martin could have uh, achieved so much more 
um, if it weren't for those injuries. And just that forehand is just amazing. I love it. Who knows? Who knows what he would have been? I think we would have seen Djokovic be severely challenged, and Nadal and Federer be severely mm. challenged by Del Potro over the last decade. Um, if if Juan Martin was able to was able to keep his body right, and it's so unfortunate because he is one of the most likable guys on tour, and that forehand, as you said, oh that that is just lethal. You could just watch an hour or hours and hours of it just yeah. clubber, clobbering people off the court. So just brilliant stuff. And yeah, fingers crossed he can get back and challenge for another slam. I'm not sure now, but we'll soon see my men. Uh, well, number five, if you listen to the show before we did the reboot, um, I was a big advocate of this man and we had him on uh, in studio back, um, back a couple of years ago. <laughs> Stéphane Robert, the Stéphane train, the train, career high ranking of 50. So that's pretty impressive. He made one, one ATP final, but you wouldn't, you, you know, when you watched him and uh, he was playing in Adelaide earlier on in the year against Alex Bolt and he and the commentators never mentioned that he made the top 50 in the world. And I'm like, how do you not mention something like that? Because it's a wonderful feat to actually get to a career high ranking of 50. Brilliant stuff from him. Ivo Karlovic is my number four. Career high ranking of 14. Leads Novak Djokovic head to head and is the, has hit the most aces in tennis history. He's still playing at 41 years old. He is an absolute superstar. I don't think he's ever going to quit. He, he says he's not anyway. Um, his Twitter is, is hilarious. There, Get is, there, is there any other player in the world that has um, that leads Novak head-to-head? Uh, there wouldn't be many, no. Nick Kyrgios. No. Oh, yeah. The true. only other yep. one that I can name off the top. Big service. Yep, Exactly. Exactly. Nikolai Davidenko was my three, um, as he was with you. In, uh, I think he was number three. Um, and career-high ranking of three, beat all four members of the big four. And also, um, as you mentioned, ATP finals winner in 2009. My number two, and this man had such a wonderful beginning to his career, but sort of petered out towards the end. Marcos Bagdadis, career-high ranking of eight, and the 2006 <laughs> Australian oh, Open final, as well as the 2006 Wimbledon semi-final appearance, the guy was so universally loved and was was a massive cult hero everywhere he went. Brilliant player. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, just couldn't really live up to those expectations that he hit so early and won the first set in that 2006 Oz Open final against Federer before running out of puff in the end. My number one, however, David Nalbandian, career high ranking oh, of no. three. Made every Grand Slam semi-final and was a Wimbledon finalist back in the year Leighton Hewitt won it. Only player to beat the big three in the same tournament. ATP Finals winner in 2005 from two sets down against Federer. The guy has done so many wonderful things on court. There was one thing that he did that wasn't great, which was kick a sponsor's board, which ended up ricocheting into a linesman, and he got disqualified from the Queen's final. But apart from that, the career was relatively successful. Um, What a wonderful player he was. He's won so many big titles, and um, he was so good to watch. His rivalry with Leighton Hewitt was brilliant. Um, they played so many big matches, 2002 Wimbledon final. They played Davis Cup matches against each other, 05 Australian Open quarterfinal, the 2011 Australian Open first round that went five sets, 8-6 in the fifth in Albanian. Um, you know, what a wonderful player he was and a custodian for Argentinian tennis. And um, uh, yeah, he's now driving uh, rally cars around Argentina. Oh, there you go. That's yep. uh yeah, that's that's um that's weird. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, fun but fact. You know what else is weird, Val? Yes. Benoit. <laughs> Should we get to it? 
Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. We're getting, we, we, we're getting to it. We, yeah, we do love Benoit of the Week, and this is our new segment, which um, we, we name our Benoit Pair of the Week, and they've had amazing moments, but also just might need a hug at the same time or just have a right royal crap week. And um, this person, well, oh, I'm not sure what to say, Joel, so I'll give it to you. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's only been three weeks, but I'm surprised this is only the first time that we're nominating this particular um, individual. Um, and it certainly won't be the last. I can, I can tell you, I can tell our listeners that much, but um, yeah, um, a certain president of, uh, of the United States of America, uh, of the free world, um, Mr. Donald Trump, you are the Benoit of the week, Donald. What are you doing, mate? Telling people to inject poison. Are you serious? Uh, Come on, Inject with disinfectant, Joel. I, I don't quite know what to say. I really don't. And then, and then, and then, and then in the next in the next breath, the next day, to say that he was just being sarcastic, mate. Yeah. I don't think we need sarcasm in the middle of a global pandemic, telling people to inject themselves with poisons. I mean, dude, it's actually it scares me, Val, that 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 the leader of the free world is actually more dangerous than coronavirus itself. <laughs> Well, I remember I saw a tweet from 2009 saying that if he was ever in office as president, nobody would die of a pan, uh, of, through a pandemic. No one under his <laughs> tenure would die. They've had the worst record out of everybody, which is shocking. It's awful. But the fact that he's still, yeah. he's still trying to be defiant, it's like just try and work at something and get it fixed. And, yeah, you know, up. work with everybody else to try and get it fixed. But... Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly with the Benoit of the Week. It's Donald Trump, 1,000%. And um, just before we do go, go Joel, um, let's extend our deepest condolences to the Ken or to Ken Rosewall and the Rosewall family for the loss of his wife, Wilma. Uh, they were married for over 60 years, and she passed away yesterday, which is so sad. Um, she was the light of his life and um, really, really awful. But um, they, they had such a wonderful life together, and um, the Australian tennis community is poorer um, for the loss, but fingers crossed that um, that Ken's okay and the family are okay and our deepest condolences to them. Yep. Well said, Val, and uh, yeah, echo everything um, that you have said. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Joel, um, for today. It's been an awesome show. We finally tracked down Marinko and what a wonderful man he is. And um, yeah, we wish him luck in all his endeavours over there in Bali. And we thank the League of Tennis Academy as well for for helping us out with um with that, I contacted them and um they they helped facilitate the interview. So absolutely brilliant on their part. So if you're ever in Bali, head down there. You can get a lesson with Marinko. You can book online uh, at leagueoftennisacademy.com. I think that's the website. Um, but um yeah, no, brilliant. That was it was such a wonderful show. And Joel, thank you for your your part of it as well with our Benoit of the week, our top fives, and um some news in between. Yeah, no, no worries, Val. We're uh, we're going to duck off because we're going to try and arrange another guest for next week. Yeah, we are. That's um, that's well and truly in the pipeline. So stay tuned for next week's show. We could have another guest. Um, I'm I'm hoping this does come through because it would be very very exciting if it does. So Joel, thank you very much for you uh, for your efforts today. Brilliant stuff on your part. Thanks, mate. See you next week. No worries. See you then. Uh, this has been Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo and Joel Frucci here with you. Have an awesome week. We'll catch you next time.